This is Songwriter, the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today's episode features the triumphant return of the songwriter and my good friend, Vienna Tang. But first, the story that inspired her song, The Museum of Rain, by Dave Eggers. Dave is an author, a publisher, a visual artist, and the founder of magazines like McSweeney's and nonprofits like Voice of Witness, Scholar Match, and 826 Valencia. Based in the Mission District of San Francisco, 826 Valencia is dedicated to helping children and young adults develop writing skills and helping teachers inspire their students to write. I'll come back to 826 Valencia later, but for now, here's Dave Eggers talking about his complicated and intense relationship with music. It's been a lot of years, maybe 15, since I had any interaction directly with any musicians in this kind of way, because I... I sort of purposely stay away from music because I love it so much and I don't want to mess it up because I can't play a note on any instrument and never have been able to. I get to appreciate music from a perspective of a total outsider. I listen to music every minute of every day while I write and I love to be able to do so without any knowledge of how it works. When I get to kind of interact distantly with somebody like Vienna, it's really uh, a delight because I don't know anything about the form outside of what I like. I don't know how she wrote the song. I don't know her process. I don't think I want to know. I studied as a painter and a, you know, I went to art school for a lot of years and so I, I know that form on a, you know, intimate level and on a formal level and I know the mechanics and and so when I see a painting I can generally figure out how it was made and the same thing with a novel which can sometimes take you out of the enjoyment of it if you see a mistake or if you see too much of the scaffolding or the a great book will make you forget those things and a flawed one will remind you constantly uh, of it and of your own flaws in your own work. And, you know, and sometimes I've been hesitant to meet musicians whose work I love because I don't want to be thinking about them as people or, you know, uh, when I listen to their music, I just want it to be a, 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 a pure enjoyment because it means so much to me. I cannot function. I can't read or write without music. Well, I write on a boat, so I have a little boat in the bay. I have a little boombox in the boat and um, a few hundred CDs from going back to high school, basically. For about a year, almost every day, I started my workday with an album of sort of Irish standards by Sinead O'Connor, which has made this last week really hard. You know, I think a lot of us felt protective of her and she was absolutely right about the Catholic Church and I dodged a few 
bullets with Priest, but a few of my friends did not. So I'm great grateful for everything that she did and how uh, relentless she was. So yet another truth seeker is given her credit far too late. The story that Dave reads from today, The Museum of Rain, is deeply rooted in the California wilderness, and perhaps it is no surprise that Dave's family is as well. I have a lot of relatives down in the area of Hollister, which is a little town that an ancestor of mine founded. Went across the plains from Missouri in a covered wagon, led a wagon train, and then settled there and bought some land. They named it after him. His name was Colonel Hollister. They named the town after him. And then 150 years later or so, um, Abercrombie and Fitch decided to steal that name and, uh, and put it on half the shirts in the world. The Museum of Rain is a part of a much larger thing that I'm crawling my way toward a much larger book called The Forgetters, but I'm releasing the chapters of it as individual books. It'll take 10 or 20 or 40 years. This is an excerpt of The Museum of Rain by Dave Eggers, read aloud by its author publicly for the very first time. They climbed over the Anza's rough-hewn fence and passed through a wide pasture. Aren't there cows here? Rebecca asked. Sometimes, Oshin said. He scanned the valley. They must be on the other side of the hill. There's shade over there. I'm hot, said a voice. Oshin said nothing. Nothing could be done about the heat, and nothing could be done about children mentioning the heat. But after the pasture, there was a winding, marshy stream, and Oshin showed the kids how to wet the backs of their necks with the cool water. The water made everyone thirsty, so Oshin had Rebecca distribute the two thermoses. The kids caught sight of the Pringles in one of the open backpacks, and they were quickly devoured. Is it true you sit in rivers naked? Oshin turned to find a new boy with close-set eyes and hair like a black mushroom. His mouth was full of chips. Who told you that? Oshin asked. Rebecca looked up to Oshin. With his answer, her idea of him would either be enhanced or dashed. Though he did indeed sit in rivers naked, his river, behind his cabin, all alone, ten miles from the next human, never seen by anyone, he decided to temper the truth. In a bathing suit, yes, he said. Rebecca's face relaxed. I sit in a chair and the river rushes to me. My doctor told me to do it. He looked down at Rebecca and winked. They walked on, the kids in pairs and clumps, picking up rocks and throwing rocks, examining scat, stopping to empty their shoes of pebbles and dust. A tiny boy was assembling a wildflower bouquet for his mother. Oshin was debating whether to tell him that the beautiful orange flowers that dominated his bunch were California poppies, illegal to pick, when he saw the coyotes. Hold on, Oshin said. There were three of them, about 70 yards away, high on a rounded hill, basking on a wide, flat stone. Oshin pointed them out to the children, and soon they were all crouched close to him, whispering and trying to stay still. It had been decades since Oshin had seen coyotes like this, at rest in the sun. This was the closest he'd been to a group. They were so rarely seen in groups. And during the daytime, this was extraordinary. What do we do? asked the boy with mushroom hair. Nothing, 
Oshin whispered. Just watch. What do you see? They're so skinny, a girl said. Her hair was the color of a pumpkin seed, and she wore rubbery eyeglasses. They are, aren't they? Oshin said. When we think of coyotes, don't we think of them as fearsome? But they're wiry, smaller than you. He put his hand on the tiny head of the girl with goggle glasses. It fit perfectly in his palm like a cantaloupe. But it's bigger than the fox, the mushroom boy noted. There had been a fox the night before, fascinated by the fire, intrigued by the prospect of food scraps. It had circled, casual and confident, for hours. The fox was so tiny, Oji said. One of the coyotes lazily raised himself, stretched, and looked in their direction. Does he see us? One of the miserable two asked. She seemed content now that something was happening. Probably, Oshin said. Alone, Oshin would have watched the coyotes for as long as they were there, but he knew the kids would lose patience. Besides, they only had so much light to get to the Museum of Rain and back. They marched on, and as they approached the wide, flat stone on which the coyotes were sunning, the trio drifted off, disappearing behind the far side of the hill. Why do you sit in the river? Another child asked. She had her black hair pulled painfully tight into a ponytail. Who are you? Oshin asked. Caitlin, she said. For one thing, Caitlin, I like it. Why? she asked. It feels good. Is the water warm? God, no! It's so cold, he said. Caitlin made a face. Is it like a punishment? she asked. Oshin laughed. Catholics. No, he said. It's just something I like to do. Now most of the kids were listening. Between the coyotes and Pringles and this story of sitting in rivers, he'd become intriguing. So Oshin decided to tell the plain truth. He would likely never see any of them again, and maybe he would impart this much to them. There's a stream that runs behind my cabin, he explained. Snow from the mountains melts in the spring and comes rushing down and eventually runs past my home, which is on the valley floor. In the summer, it gets very hot. Where? The mushroom boy asked. Where what? Where do you live? Idaho. Can I continue? Oshin said. The boy threw his stick and got another. It gets very hot in the summer, Oshin continued. And for years, I'd been just dipping my feet into the river. And then about 10 years ago, I began sort of crouching down in it for relief from the heat. But the current is strong and the river's only about two feet deep, so you can't swim. Why not? This was a new boy, the largest of them all. He was bulbous and heavy-legged and had what Oshin hoped were fake tattoos on his ankles. Because it's only two feet deep, it'd be like swimming in a bathtub. This boy did some calculating and seemed to concur. So one day I was sitting in my chair on the side of the river, Oshin continued, and I was watching the river go by, and it just occurred to me that I could put the chair in the river. Why? It was the same boy. You have a habit, Oshin said, of asking why the moment after I explained why. It's perverse. The boy slashed weed with his new stick. Oshin softened his rejoinder with a wink. So I sat in the river, he continued, facing the current, and it was the best of all worlds. The water kept me cool, and I had a comfortable place to sit, and all the while there was the excitement of the river coming at me, over me, and through me. Oshin thought he had painted the picture effectively and stood with the children in the silence. Sounds like you're just sitting in a river. 
Oshin looked around for the source of this wisdom. It was the mushroom boy. I am sitting in the river. That's why I call it river sitting. I invented that word. You didn't invent that word, the boy said. I did indeed. It's not even a word. It is. You can look it up. Where? Any book. Every book. Every book has some mention of river sitting and how I made up the word. Oshin found Rebecca's eyes. She was smiling at him. Nothing better than a child who gets your jokes. He loved her so much it hurt. They resumed their walk. Rebecca dashed into the thicket and returned with a fuzzy green plant. Eat this, she said. Fennel, he asked. She nodded eagerly and took a bite of hers. I haven't had this in so long, he said. The taste was first a delicate mint with a strong licorice chaser. Time to eat fennel, Oshin announced, and he and Rebecca distributed stalks to all the kids. Half of them tried it. The others stood with arms crossed, repulsed. You can't just eat random plants, one of the miserable two said. Agreed, Oshin said. That one, for example, you can't eat. He pointed to a plant he just spotted, a spiky fruit called a patty melon. But you can eat fennel and sourgrass. Rebecca? Rebecca plucked a handful of sourgrass and distributed it. The local kids knew to suck on the stalk where the takings were sour, yes, but provided a sugary jolt, too. Where are we going? Caitlin asked. The Museum of Rain, Rebecca said. It's not a real museum, Caitlin said. Yes, it is, Rebecca said. You'll see. Is it true you were in a war and got shot? Caitlin asked. More or less, yes, Oshin said. But you didn't die? Caitlin asked. Oshin laughed. No, I didn't die. So is the museum about the war? She asked. No, he said. It's not about the war. Satisfied that there was nothing interesting about Oshin or where they were going, Caitlin skipped ahead to catch up with the larger group. Oshin slowed down until he and Rebecca were at the rear of the group. The path was dusty, striped by violet tree shadows. Sorry about her, Rebecca said. So you've been to the museum, he asked. She seemed to know more about it than any of the other children. No, she said, but Patrick said it was there, that you built it because you were in love with someone. Oshin stopped. He didn't know where to start. Is that something he told everyone or just you? Just me, she said. He's your grandfather? She nodded. Was he wrong? Well, yes, he's usually wrong. The Museum of Rain was just a thing. The words occurred to me one day, and then I started filling jars with rain. And I saw a strange hollow in this big old manzanita, and that became the Museum of Rain. Grandpa Patrick said it was a monument to your tears, because some girl left you. The kids were far ahead of them now. We better catch up, Oshin said. But listen, Patrick tells a good story. He always has. But it's entirely false. Not a word of it is true. It is, I admit, more memorable than the truth, which is that one day I just did it. I like that story, too, she said. Sometimes, Oshin said, people simply do things. They get an idea and do it. And it's not tied up with any love or childhood trauma. If we believe there's a dramatic origin story for every human endeavor, we deprive our species of the ability to simply conjure an idea, to just make stuff and do things. I'm learning the banjo, she said, and Oshin laughed a long while.
That was Dave Eggers with an excerpt from the Museum of Rain. And now for the song written in response. I am Vienna Tang. I am a songwriter, piano player, singer, but I also contain other multitudes, I guess. And so for the past 10 years, I've also been a sustainability consultant and a nonprofit staff member. <laughs> These days, I'm also a mother of a three-year-old. I was very aware of Dave Eggers as a public figure when I was living in San Francisco and then also after that, and just thought, this is a tremendous human, you know, who's writing with such fierce humor and insight, but also like doing other things in the world. And maybe subconsciously, I was thinking of him as a template for how to live life. You know, I've always thought that being a creative person and then also trying to do practical stuff to make things better, was how I wanted to be, and he was always out there as someone who seemed to be modeling that. These days, I am embarking on an experiment that just started uh, late last year, where I left my jobby job, the one with health insurance, <laughs> and have dived back into music uh, with the idea of using my life as a musician and integrating it with what I care about with climate change in particular and climate action. And so I've been trying to figure out what it means to be a musician who is also a climate organizer of music communities. And so I hold climate action workshops at music venues when I'm on tour. I also have started this online community of people that I trade you know, climate action tips with and try to help them to do their particular part and you know, find their particular niche in the climate movement. I loved Museum of Rain from the first reading. Um, I was so grateful that you sent it to me, Ben. I felt a particular personal connection because it takes place, I think, just kind of outside the Monterey Salinas area in California. And I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and so spent many moments of my childhood down in that area. I just really loved how it was a book that was so deceptively simple, but at the same time, there's this incredible depth of feeling and depth of philosophy, I guess you could say, about why we're actually here and like what we're spending our time doing. And it was so much packed into a short book. So I read it a couple of times just by myself, and I uh, read it to my two older stepkids and my husband and our then baby. And we just read it out loud one evening and everyone was just spellbound. And um, I remember there were a couple of moments where I'm like, okay, I have to pause and actually collect myself before I read this next sentence because it's somehow hitting me in a way that I didn't expect. The journey to writing the song the way that it came out was a result of way overthinking it and then putting aside all the overthinking. When I started out trying to figure out what I would write the song in response to this book about and like how it would sound, I was like, okay, well, I'll just draw literally on a couple of the things that are in the book. So they're in, they're a family of Irish origins. So I'll draw on like, you know, Irish traditional music or it'll have, you know, hints of that kind of Irish session music or Irish ballads, you know, that sort of thing. 
and there are all these kids. And so maybe there should be a whole section that's like sung by a sort of like kids chorus um, or maybe some refrain that sounds like, you know, a playground chant. And then I thought like, oh yeah, and then there's this wonderful moment when this uh, kid, Rebecca, says I'm learning to play the banjo. And it just felt like, you know, somewhere in the song there should be a banjo solo or, you know, something like that sounded like uh, a very simple but, you know, tasteful like thing of, you know, someone playing the banjo in a very rudimentary way. So I had all these like things, you know, little post-its of like, here are all the things that should be in this song. And then I just got stuck because none of those are my natural, I'm not, you know, a children's chorus. I don't play the fiddle. I don't play the banjo, <laughs> none of this stuff. And so all I had was this concept, like this design brief of like how the Museum of Rain song should sound and I couldn't do any of it. So I got pretty stuck. And then it was only because I was on a deadline that I was like, okay, forget that. I'm just going to go with what comes out of me when I think of how it felt to read the book. I absolutely feel despair at various points of any songwriting process. <laughs> the idea that you mentioned, Ben, that it is a natural and necessary part of it is very comforting. <laughs> Especially for me at this particular juncture, because I'm coming back into songwriting after having not really been a songwriter for about 10 years. And that carries with it all the insecurities you would expect, that do I even know how to do this anymore? And if I do know how to do it, could I possibly write music that I find interesting now versus songs that I might have found cool to write when I was in my 20s or 30s? I think getting stuck would very quickly bring up all these other feelings like, oh, I can't do this at all, and this isn't going to work. And it was compounded by the fact that I admired Dave Eggers so much that I didn't want to let him down, and I didn't want to turn in a mediocre song that didn't feel like it did justice to this book that I had come to love so much. So I think it maybe was necessary, given all that kind of anxiety, to overthink it and then be forced to stop overthinking it. <laughs> For this one, I wanted to, at first, capture the idea of Ocean being in a very different place from the kids. And that not necessarily being like an uncomfortable disconnect, but more just like kind of how two different points of view sort of dance around each other. So in the end, I think the way I found my way into the complexities of the story were more in the lyrics that I was trying to pay homage to Dave Eggers' writing of it being deceptively simple but actually having a lot going on. A line like, there's a place I'm told might be standing still out beyond the field of headstones. You know, it's very factual, like there's a place over there and there's a cemetery that you'll pass on the way. That felt like the way to get at the, the you know, juicy nuances of the story. The idea that our day has hours left to go in some ways can sound very expansive, I would hope. And on the other hand, not in some ways, like we only have hours left to go before this time together is over. I feel like throughout the song I was trying to capture both the sort of future is still kind of laid out in sort of undulating hills into the distance for the kids and 
that is sort of wrapping up for Ocean. We're not kind of living on the same time scale, and yet we meet here. I love the way that Dave Eggers seemed to be gently reminding us that, you know, life just sort of keeps happening, and you can make meaning out of it sort of as you choose. And that also, you know, sometimes you just do a thing, and there's not like a deep, <laughs> dramatic story behind it. And sometimes people, sometimes the best way to move through something may be to move through it without trying to analyze it to death, I guess. <laughs> I don't think it occurred to me that I was writing as a mother speaking to my child on this song. But it's certainly there, now that you mention it. <laughs> I think, you know, we can't help but be ourselves when we're writing, right? You know, like, the creative process, it's true. I, I do subscribe to Rick Rubin's sort of general theory of how this works is that there's you know information out there and there are ideas whose time has come and that they find particular people to express that through and if those people don't do the work then that idea finds someone else. I was writing the last uh, bit of the song that, that came pretty late because I'd written sort of you know verse chorus verse chorus and I knew there was like some verse chorus at the end but I didn't know how to make it more structurally interesting beyond that and so it wasn't until I was recording the song and I just sort of left a space in the middle and I thought okay well there's some sort of interlude I guess to kind of be a bridge between the second and third sections which is when I came up with that sort of rising bit in 3-4 and when I was playing it, I thought, oh, maybe this is also how the song ends, where it comes back again, but then maybe I'm singing at that point. So what am I singing at that point? Because the energy sort of is building, um, or the sort of intensity of what the, the, the singer is saying is building at that point. And I thought it'd be really great to call back that idea of like the most precious thing I own is actually the moment of spending this time with these children and in particular Rebecca you know this connection that even if it's brief and never comes back again like that is actually the most precious thing that he owns and that you know any of us own is these moments that we have with the people who are who mean a lot to us it definitely resonated with me too as a metaphor for the you know being a creative person and putting stuff out there. The idea that you don't really know what happens to it, and you certainly don't know what happens to it decades from now or after you're gone, right? And that ultimately, the only thing you can do is create something that pleases you, you know, create something that you wish existed, and then you work on it, and so it does. <laughs> and so it does for however brief, you know, time that you know, it gets taken up by anyone else. And you never know. I've, I've definitely had songs that I was super proud of and I thought it was just, you know, a really, you know, brilliant bit of work and that, you know, nobody requested at my shows. And then there are other songs that I thought, like, I don't even know if I like this song. I don't know if I should put it out there. And then years later, people still ask for it and say that, you know, we got married to it, or, you know, I have, this has been the soundtrack of, you know, so many important moments in my life.
couldn't believe it. I uh, I did not know her work before, so I had that experience of discovering her on every level as a vocalist and as a musician and then as somebody that really deeply understood the story. To say I was floored would be an understatement. I uh, hit me like a truck. To know that, you know, somebody with her talent would take the time to compose a song based on a story of mine, to do it with such subtlety and delicacy and, and a, with a song that also soars and also just in every way understands the spirit of that story. It really knocked me flat. And then I started looking her up and what was weird was that I think a week after I heard that she was playing in the Bay Area about an hour away and I desperately wanted to go, but uh, I couldn't. So um, now I'm a lifelong fan of uh, Vienna and I'm excited to see her live when I can. In the midst of this mutual admiration love fest, Vienna came up with the idea of her song being used as a fundraiser for 826 Valencia. As I understand it, the Museum of Rain was published as a kind of benefit for 826. And I feel Dave Eggers' love of kids and commitment to kids and understanding of kids come through so clearly in this book. Like just all the stuff that the various kids say you can really tell that this is written by someone who spent time around kids. <laughs> it just sounds very, very real. So I thought, well, you know, it makes sense to put the song out, but then to have any you know, financial rewards that come from it to go back into that project and to keep more stories coming from whoever else might be finding their voice right now. As Dave points out, 826 Valencia is for precisely the kinds of young artists that Vienna and Dave and even I once were. The kind of kids that would have come in and taken classes with us, kids that were interested in the written word and maybe didn't have that third place outside of home and school to spend and find their tribe. So it would be great if Vienna was up for that and maybe someday we can get together and play it at 826 Valencia. This is Vienna Tang with her song, The River Sitter, The Museum of Rain. Beyond the past, 
that long ago sheltered something I'd begun. You don't have to tell a tidy story. You don't need a home for every hole. You can just sit in the river, let the river rush to you. You don't need to find and lose true love. You don't need a twisting in your soul. You can just sit in the river, let the river run you through. Just do a thing that you get the idea to do. Vienna Tang's song, The River Sitter, The Museum of Rain. The song is available exclusively at Bandcamp, and all proceeds benefit 826 Valencia. You can find it at viennatang.bandcamp.com. I have a new song out this week as well. It's called Abide, and it's available wherever music streams. The next episode features George Saunders reading his story, Sea Oak, and new songs written in response by Craig Finn of The Hold Steady and me, featuring special guest, Vienna Tang. Songwriter is 100% independently produced. If you want to support the artist and the producer who makes it, please consider a premium subscription exclusively from Apple Podcasts. Five-star ratings, kind reviews, and just the act of subscribing help as well. You can always get early access to Songwriter at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks, as always, to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe.